0: Well, here we are, Season 3. Actually, the first episode's not all that bad, but I can explain why. But let's not. We're not here to talk about an episode, we're here to talk about Star Trek. Actually, real talk for a second, I kinda wish I could do an even deeper dive on the making of TOS, but that really would be a whole other thing. And, yeah, no, I do not have time. I barely have time to do this, I'm already pushing out five of these a day, you know? Like, I'm sorry, guys. I love my job, but I can only do so much, okay? Check this out. <clears throat> I just wanted to share this tiny little bit really quick here. Gene Kuhn wrote this episode. Now, you're probably thinking, wait, well, I thought he left Trek. So I'm going to read a direct quote from Robert Justman here. <sighs> Gene Kuhn was gone, but his influence continued to be felt. As a condition of being left out of his contract, he had promised to complete work on a number of his story premises if Star Trek was renewed for a third season. The Last Gunfight was one of those stories he was developing at the time he left Trek, but now Kuhn was working elsewhere on an exclusive contract, and legally he could write only for Universal Television, his new employer. Intending to honor his contract, Kuhn explained he would not be able to write the teleplay for Gunfight, and being a man of his word, however, Gene Kuhn arranged for Lee Cronin to complete the assignment. It was filmed and retitled Spectre of the Gun. Lee Cronin also contributed two third series uh, season stories, Wink of an Eye, Let That Be Your Best, Battlefield, as well as Spock's Brain, an episode which, as a result of a suggestion from me, Spock's purloined brain after being rescued, takes over during surgery and instructs Dr. McCoy on how to reinsert it back where it came from inside his skull. Many fans consider that one to be a worthy candidate for the worst Star Trek episode of all time. Yeah. So, we have a problem, and I'm going to keep reading here. Spectre of the Gun is an excellent script with two major drawbacks. First, uh, Stan Robertson, Robertson, who I haven't really talked about yet, but he doesn't matter for the purposes here. He was a money person. F- uh, felt like he objected to the story. He felt like it didn't fit his view of science fiction because it's just an excuse to do a western, and nobody wants to see our guys in western garb. Sure. Second, and more importantly, it required money. Money, 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 money. And more money was not in the cards. So rather than junk the script, Robert Justman approached Vincent McKev... I have never pronounced this guy's name correctly. McKev... McKevidi? McKevidi. We're going to go with McKevidi. 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 I have no freaking clue how to pronounce this goddamn name. Anyways, with the cost-saving concept of... I'm just an idiot. Don't mind me. I actually have a lot of respect for the man, and I'll talk about why in a minute. So he used the stylist thing, the anger thing, and the story, and the blah, blah, blah. And it's awesome. This is also when Walter Koenig finally actually got to be able to do something. So I want to talk about that briefly as well. Walter Koenig uh, was approached during the very the tail end of Season two's production and told that he was actually pretty popular. Not as popular as Spock, but he was testing well. So they wanted to do more with Chekhov. And Koenig was like, sweet! Then the Season 3 disaster happened. And, well, we'll this is about what, what Chekhov gets, is right here. So I hope you enjoyed his role in this episode, because this is about all it is. No offense or anything, it's not bad, it's just that this is it. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Uh, I'm looking at my notes here. I just want to make sure I cover that and I cover that. But let's talk about one more thing about Season 3. I've already mentioned this, but let's go down the full list, shall we? Because I wrote up all the people, all the main people who left. Fontana, Roddenberry, Kuhn, Pevney. Justman, Robert Justman, would leave about halfway through the season with Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Jerry Finnerman would leave several episodes after this with The Empath. Mark Daniels would only direct one episode in this season, and Senensky would only direct two. Uh, this is, by the way, McAvity's last episode, so he's leaving as of this one. And Pevni's already gone. But I want to spe- spe- pe- 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 pay special attention to the camera operators and lighting designers and camera workers. Because you may notice, if you, especially if you're going through these sequentially like I am... The visual distinction between the last two episodes and this one is stark. That's because almost all of season three literally was being filmed cheap... cheaper? More cheaply? Let's go with more cheaply, because that implies quality, not money, which is exactly what I'm trying to imply. And, as I mentioned, several of these people were bowing out and would no longer be involved in the visual look of the show. And it shows. Whether that's a good or a bad thing is up to you, but it is definitely a thing. Yikes. This is also our very last first episode. I don't know how many of you even remember we were doing that back in the season one stuff. It's like, here's the first episode. Well, this is our last one. You're probably thinking, what? Because we've already done first in production order. We've done first in Original air date. We've done first in remastered, and we've done first in Star date, and I think there was actually another one in there somewhere. But now we're doing our very last first episode. This was my first episode. This is the first episode of Star Trek I ever saw, ever. If you'll forgive me for indulging for just a second, uh, my mum, Lor mum, she was a big Trekker slash trek-e. She called herself a Trekker. And she was really into this, and she she loved Star Trek the original series. And so, when I got to the point where I could understand television, one of the things she liked to do was sit down and watch you know, Star Trek with me. I've I've told this story in in part because I've mentioned how we watched TNG as it came out. You know, we watched Encounter at Farpoint the day it came out, right? But before that, we tried TOS, and this was the first episode I saw, and I hated it. Now. You're probably thinking, why? This is a good episode. And I agree, this is a good episode. But what what would that have been? Three-year-old me? All three-year-old me could see was a weird, creepy place that didn't make sense and a bobbing alien head. Yeah, it freaked me out. To this day, this this episode has an imprint on my memory, and I have never forgotten it and never will. This actually came up recently. I was chatting with Laura Loaded, and I was like, oh, that's the dude from Spectre of the Gun. And he was like, what? Because it is so imprinted on my mind because of how much this freaked me out when I was, like, three. I just, I find that hysterical, and I suppose I probably shouldn't. Either way, it's our final, start first. Okay, so, we see the immediate visual difference. It's really distinct when the episode starts. And we've established we must make contact with these people at all costs. Why? Why? What is This is not the first time this has happened, if you're paying attention. Starfleet, or the Federation, has had this you-must-make-contact order before. Why? Why is this a thing? Why is Starfleet, and or the Federation, insistent on being like, you will, you will allow us to make peace with you, I'll kill you if you don't let me make peace with you, kind of approach to things? <laughs> I mean, I like Taste of Armageddon, but what the crap? I like this episode, too. I need to put this on the VHS list, consequently. This is actually a better episode than I remembered. No joke. Uh, It's not super high on the list. I'd probably put it here, right below Obsession. Specter of the Gun, doing it live. Sorry for the typing. Why is this a thing? Anyways. So then they're like, we must make contact. Okay. So then we find out that these people have telepathy. Now in the interest of fairness, this is some good exposition. The moment they hear it, Kirk has this surprised face, and he turns to Spock. And Spock is like, "Uh uh-huh, yep, I understand exactly why you're turning to me and being surprised. Because they're speaking Vulcan. And it is, Kirk is like, no, that's English. And Chekhov's like, no, that's Russian! And so forth and so on. I like that. It's a very quick and dirty way to establish what's going on. So that's good exposition. Then they go down into the fog, and then... They're in The Illusion. Now, <laughs> before I talk about The Illusion, I want to say that this episode drags a lot in the first act, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's it's not that memorable and why I usually have skipped it in the past, ignoring the trauma thing, obviously. Because the first, uh, I wrote it down, the first 18 minutes of the episode is still them trying to exposit on the nature of the situation they're in. It's like, okay, guys, I get it. You don't, have, you don't have to spend, oh, my God, you don't have to spend a third of the episode, a little over a third of the episode, telling me what's going on, guys. I get it. I get it. Oh, my God. It just feels like it drags. And, in fact, I only have, uh, looks like, two? Yep, two notes during the first 18 minutes. The first is that Kirk really gets into this Western thing, because, of course, he does his Kirk. He is in the Old West. He, that is the era that we're in, in Star Trek, as of TOS. That's, that's always been it. We have Enterprise, which is the absolute, which is right before the Old West. We've got TOS, which is the Old West. And then the Old West gets paved over by, you know, actual development going west, which is now the TNG era. So, you know, actually that'd probably be the movie era. Then TNG era is like way after that when, you know, San Francisco and all that is a major bustling city and, and, you know, so forth and so on. Chekhov gets to do some smooching. It's good to see some smooching, smooching's good, smooching's good. You'd you'd think I'd complain about this, but I'm actually not going to. It is a little bit over the top, but it's being done for comedy, and there is another reason for it, so I'm willing to let it pass. But now let's talk about the big thing I really wanted to praise about this episode. And it is easily the best part of the episode, in my opinion. The sets. This is brilliantly surrealistic, while at the same time an absolutely genius decision by um, the guy whose name I can't pronounce, which is why it pissed me off so much earlier, because I have a lot of respect for him as a director, and he actually, every source I've read credits him for the idea of using what is effectively play stills. You know, this is the, If you haven't seen the episode recently, all of the buildings are actually just the front wall of the building and then some chairs and tables set up behind it as if the building was there, as if it was a play being portrayed. And because they very deliberately use that aesthetic and that style, it looks off. In Like I said, it's surrealistic, and it's wonderful, and it means the episode could get made. Remember, the budget problems are worse than they have ever been. In addition to the to all the other problems I've talked about, they have absolutely destroyed the weekly budget that this, or excuse me, the episode budget that this show got. Which is also in addition to the fact that the episodes were now costing more than they ever had before, just to get them made. Period. As in, if you just put a camera on the bridge and set the whole episode on the bridge, it would still cost more to make an episode than it did back in season two, because that's how that works. Because of the whole. Actors making more money, and the producers making more money, and everyone's salary goes up a boot boost, right? This is how that works. So, <laughs> doing this was an absolutely genius design, and I, I cannot praise it enough. My favorite part is the bar, because we see the front, you know, the front end of the bar, but then they actually go in, and there's there's a decent amount of set dressing there you know there's the table and the chairs and there's the bar and there's the 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 piano thing and there's there's all sorts of pieces there but because it is so open because there's no walls and no floor and no ceiling you could just see the red fog in the distance in all directions it almost literally looks like you're in a nightmare which of course given the nature of the episode makes sense i i'm sorry for gushing about this this is awesome this is very creative And this is the kind of stuff that you can come up with. Whenever you hear someone talk about, you know, when you're... You can come up with your really creative stuff when you are very limited. This is the kind of stuff those people are talking about. I say those people instead of us people because I usually don't say that. I do think that that's a a bit of a misnomer. I don't think that reducing your ability automatically increases creativity. I just think it can engender creativity in people who are already very creative. Anyways so 18 minutes go by and nothing happens check this out though so this is a threat episode right there is a an opponent an obstacle that they must overcome in order to get past so that's that's the nature of the episode so how do they get through it well the first thing they do if you'll notice is they try diplomacy they just try to talk to people figure out what's going on uh, Kirk actually specifically goes out and it's like, hey that doesn't go anywhere so forth and so on so th- there are attempts and efforts made next thing they try is avoidance let's just leave nope that's not allowed which makes sense as they're not actually there the third thing they try is okay let's try to solve the threat by defeating it in a in non-standard manner in other words rather than just going out with a bunch of guns and shooting we're gonna try to do some other method to get through it okay cool this then leads to check off dying now i mentioned that i was okay with the sylvia stuff because it's all a build up to this moment ignoring the fact that it gives Chekhov the necessary screen time for us to really give a damn, no offense to Walter Koenig, I actually love him as an actor, and no offense to Chekhov, it's just having him on screen there is helpful so that when he dies, it means something. In fact, I will not call this a redshirt death, because it's not. This is not something done to prove the situation is serious. I'll get to that in a second, too. But instead, Chekhov dies. How many of you have had the opportunity to have watched this when it was coming out or unaware of future stuff and wondered if he was actually staying dead. I'm just curious. I only know one person who had that availability. And my mom flat out said that she didn't buy for a second that he was permanently dead. But that's the only person I knew who I could interview about that. I actually asked her specifically just today. I was like, hey, mom. And she was like, no, he wasn't dead. I knew that that even when I was young. And I was like, okay, just making sure. Anyways, so he dies, quote unquote, This leads to the realization, that's actually the second thing it leads to, is the realization that this is not a historical thing. They've been running under this operation this whole time, this assumption that this operation is a full historical recreation, that they are back in the past, despite all appearances to the contrary, and so they're going to have to deal with it as if it was an actual historical thing. The fact that they can now change history changes their tactics a bit. Cool. But the second reason I'm okay with the Chekhov death thing and the lead-up to it is the fact that they take an entire scene to recover from it. It's a good scene, too. Kirk is just tearing himself up over there. If I just had, if I had not, not ignored their warnings, if I had just disobeyed Starfleet Command, Chekhov would still be alive. And you can see he's just agonized over this. McCoy and Scotty both tear into Spock, and Spock is just being all very calm and contrite the whole time. And both of them are like, oh, I can't believe this. We're not like you. We, we can't do this. We have to actually deal with this. And then it is Kirk who has to walk over and be like, nah, 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 nah. and Spock's like, no, no, no. It's okay. They forget I am half human. Now, we've already established that Vulcans have emotions and all that fun stuff, but let's ignore that for a second because that line is the best line and this is the best scene in the whole episode for me. It really sells the episode for me. With that one line and Nimoy's performance, we see that he is just as hurt and just as bothered by the loss of Chekhov. It's just he is now establishing walls of iron around that because he can't deal with that right now. He's got to focus on the now. They have limited time. They're in a crisis situation. We got to get going. And, of course, he's got his Vulcan control in general and his Vulcan pride. But to say that Spock doesn't care about the loss of Chekhov is a flat inaccuracy. And that's why he says that line, they forget I am half human. It's And there's just this, I don't want to say the word insult, but like there's this cold, almost a retort in the way he says that. You know, something along the lines of, you, you actually think I don't care? You really think I don't care? Like he is insulted is a better way to put that love it love it great scene great character stuff and well i don't know anything else to say up to that so let's just move on this then leads to uh there's another good scene there's another good scene actually there's two good scenes in this episode The next one is when Kirk goes to the sheriff and is like, no, you don't understand. And and the thing that works about this scene is it escalates. It escalates quickly, but it escalates. I, I need to cut off the fight. No, I just go fight him. No, you don't understand. I need to cut off the fight. No, just go fight him. I don't. I can't kill him. Don't you want to kill him? Of course I want to kill him, but I can't. I can't just kill them. And as Kirk is getting wound up about this, we see part of the character element of Kirk in this episode, too. Kirk wants to kill them. Kirk wants revenge, but he can't just do that. He can't just walk up and kill someone in revenge. It is so contrary to who he is as a person. He may kill in self-defense without even batting an eyelash, but that's not what this is, is it? And that's why he's just so freaked out about this. And there's another little layer to this, and this is mentioned towards the end of the episode. He is ashamed of his desire for revenge. He wants revenge. He admits it in that scene. He admits it briefly, but he admits it. I want, of course I want revenge, but I can't just do that. I can't just accept that. I can't just be that. And they actually get to the point where they're literally shouting at each other. It's, it's, it's great stuff. It's, it's Kirk going ham, but in a good way, or Shatner going ham in a good way. I've seen good Shatner ham. <laughs> Made brand Shatner ham. Oh, it's good stuff. I like it. I like it. This then leads to them testing the grenade. The grenade doesn't work, and their realization, well, that's strange. That should have worked perfectly well. And now we find out that we're actually in the Matrix, except about 30 years before the Matrix came out. Your mind makes it real. So we have yet another species with telepathy and illusionary powers. What is with mind power aliens in Star Trek? This just keeps being a thing. And I'm pretty sure we're not done with that, too. I'm pretty sure we're going to have more mental power beings. It, yeah, I, I know we are, with total certainty. Because we haven't encountered uh, uh, the Gorgon yet, if nothing else. <sighs> Anyways, th- so they, they do the mind melds, and there's the big build-up, and then they, get sh- they all get shot. Wonderful praise to the effects department. They show the the fence behind them getting chewed up by the shots as they're just standing there unaffected. I'm not sure how they accomplished that effect. I actually tried to look into it and failed at it. It's a good effect. I wanted to give praise for that. And then Kirk grabs him and just beats the crap out of him. This is actually technically our second fight. They're, both of them are very brief, which is why I'm not commenting on them. And you could tell he just he wants to kill him, but he decides not to. And then you never left the bridge. And Chekhov is fine, of course. What I like about this is this ties back to A Taste of Armageddon in another way. Yes, we're a killer, but today we're not going to kill. Part of the idea there being that the choice and decision to overwhelm whatever instincts might be there being what makes us sentient, sapient beings is a good thing. The idea that we're like, no, no, I'm not going to to, to give in to this baser urge. I'm going to be a civilized person and what that can imply. And, of course, he admits this somberly to Spock. Yes, I wanted to kill him. I did, but I chose not to. And you'll notice this episode doesn't end on a wah-wah, which is the first for quite a while. Overall, not exactly a bad opener for Season 3. And, and as I already mentioned, it's already gone on the VHS list, so that's awesome. I hope you've enjoyed the beginnings of Season 3. I will see you next time.